I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. There's nothing quite like the threat of foreign invasion to divert attention from any other social or economic problems and unite everyone in defense. Take the invasion by Martians in 1938, as was broadcast across America on the radio by Orson Welles. Alien beings are not us. A very way of life, our peaceful existence and familiar culture is threatened. Millions of people were frightened and sent into a panic back then by the alleged threat. Of course, there was no actual invasion, but the power of creating and whipping up fear did not go unnoticed. It may have been what FDR was referring to when he said his famous words, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Most of the world knows how skillful President Trump has been at creating and fanning the flames of fear of an invasion by the other. And many people have been killed and injured as a result. Certainly there's never been a president like Donald Trump. Or has there? Recently, the LA Times and Tom Dispatch ran an op-ed by today's guest, author Adam Hochschild, titled 100 Years Ago, Woodrow Wilson Fanned the Flames of Hate Just Like Trump. Woodrow Wilson? Wasn't he a liberal Democrat? During those first years when America decided to get involved in the First World War, another American president was fixated on very publicly exploiting fears and phantasms of foreigners invading America. As Tom Egelhart describes the uh, Wilsonian terror, it's a grim tale of all-out repression, which echoes strangely and deeply in the Trump era. Adam Hochschild, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Bert. Adam Hochschild is author of some of my, frankly, all-time favorite books, including King Leopold's Ghost, about the little-known history of the rather bloody Belgian takeover of the Congo, and To End All Wars, a story of loyalty and rebellion, 1914 to 1918, Bury the Chains, The Unquiet Ghost, and Spain in Our Hearts, about American anti-fascists in the Spanish Civil War. His latest book is Lessons from a Dark Time and Other Essays. Well, pretty much everyone, including the candidate himself, was shocked at the election of Donald Trump in November 2016. The closest comparison to him in my lifetime would be when the avowed racist George C. Wallace ran for president. But back then, he was totally marginalized. Now Wallace's daughter Peggy insists the man who actually was actually elected, Trump, is far more of a dangerous racist than was her father. Many traditional Americans, Democrat and Republican, are shocked almost daily by this authoritarian, clearly racist, who seemingly inexplicably keeps fanning the flames of fear of an alien invasion. After all, America has long been proud of its identity as a nation of immigrants. But... 
there is indeed precedent for this hyped-up xenophobia. Hochschild writes, In our political world, we are now seeing a 100-year flood of toxic debris. The last time we had anything similar from Washington was almost exactly 100 years ago. And it, too, involved a flood of angry rhetoric and a fear of immigrants. And it included repression on an enormous scale, end of quote. Well, today we see the anti-immigrant hatred and violence. Uh, So far, we haven't seen the official repression so far. Okay, every American has heard of Woodrow Wilson, but much of uncomfortable history is intentionally erased. Who was this, our 28th president? He was first elected in 1912 as, as one of three candidates. Was he, like Trump, a bit of a surprise winner? I don't think he was a surprise winner, but when he was elected, uh, neither he nor the country, I think, in any way anticipated uh, what was going to happen some five years later uh, when the U.S. entered the First World War in a great uh, flood of uh, anger and repression was unleashed by that. Uh, But if we roll the clock back 100 years to the United States of that era, one of the things that existed in the country at that time was a lot of social and economic tension. On one level, it was tension between the uh, predominantly uh, Anglo-Saxon folks who had been in the United States for hundreds of years and kind of felt that they owned the country, you know, the wasps, uh, you know, whose uh, ancestors came here, you know, before the Revolutionary War and so forth. And then the flood of immigrants that started coming to the United States in huge numbers, uh, starting around 1880, peaked in uh, 1907, I believe, with uh, well over a million immigrants arriving in a particular in one year. And these immigrants increasingly came from places like Italy, the Russian Empire, Eastern Europe, and they were anything but Anglo-Saxon. They spoke other languages, they used other alphabets, and there was a great deal of anti-immigrant feeling. It was kind of the hundred-year-ago version of the those veins of feeling against Mexicans and Arabs and Muslims that Trump is trying to tap today. That was one very strong social tension in the United States at that time. Interwoven with it was another, which has been with us for a long time, between capital and labor. Mm -hmm. A hundred years ago, there was virtually no legal protection for labor organizing in any way. Uh, uh, You know, hundreds of American workers were killed, often by National Guardsmen, as strikes were suppressed each year. Uh, tens of thousands of workers were killed in industrial accidents and many more uh, badly wounded or maimed because there was almost no legislation, that kind, of, that kind of thing. And there was a lot of militant labor organizing, uh, most dramatically by the industrial workers of the world, yes. the country's most militant union known as the Wobblies, yes, indeed. Uh, who achieved some successes and had a real flair for drama and a way of, of putting uh, workers' grievances on the front pages. So these were some of the social tensions in the United States of 100 years ago. And then I think what really took the lid off was America entering the first
Woodrow Wilson, although we remember him more as an enlightened uh, internationalist, um, was somebody who um, uh, really, I think, presided over uh, the greatest period of repression that 20th century America has seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the, the, the worst period of repression in this country since the, the Civil War, barring the tremendous violence of the Jim Crow South, the uh, lynchings mm-hmm. and so forth. Between 1917 and 1920, uh, several thousand Americans who were opposed to the First World War were placed in jail because of that. Uh, it was one of the few times in, in American life when white people got lynched. You know, the, there had been a sort of steady drumbeat of, of dozens of black people being lynched each year. But during that period, it happened to white labor organizers as well. And Wilson was somebody who had no use for immigrants, mm. no use for black people. He was an ardent segregationist, yes, he was. Uh, came from Virginia, and the United States, the federal government had actually made some moves to desegregate the civil servants in, in the decades since the Civil War. Wilson resegregated it. He had a lot of Southerners in his cabinet, and he had no use for immigrants. I'll read you something that he, he said in a speech to Congress oh, sure, sure. in uh, 1915. Uh, he told Congress, there are citizens of the United States, I blush to admit, born under other flags, who have poured the poison of disloyalty into the very arteries of our national life. Wow. Such creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy must be crushed out. And crush them he did during this period of repression that began two years later when the U.S. entered the First World War. Boy, that wasn't uh, in most history books that elementary school kids read, that line about uh, crushing the uh, people who were born somewhere else. And I, it, I know, isn't it strange we think of Wilson and we think of this idealistic guy who wanted there to be a League of Nations, uh, you know, and there should have been a League of Nations with more power than it had, but yeah. there was this other very nasty side to him. And I find it fascinating, as you describe, oh, a hundred or so years ago, that when the IWW was, was organizing, they were virtually, you know, the capital ran everything. And there were virtually no regulations. Of course, uh, the book The Jungle came out of that. You know how the factories right. were incredibly unsafe. And fast forward to 2019, here we have a president who who specifically is intending to undo all the regulations, including protecting endangered species. I mean, just wipe out every possible regulation. So there's some similarity there. Of course, now we don't have much of a labor movement uh, that that has been uh, kind of wiped out. Now that's true. Yeah, I think Trump certainly wants to restore the kind of no holds barred robber baron era of American history, where there were absolutely no safety regulations in industry, where labor organizing was. Uh, treated very harshly, met with armed force a yes. lot of the time. Yes. Uh, he'd love to go back to that era. And, you know, as you as you say, there are very few people in labor unions left to repress. Yeah. And the the uh, 
Well, now the regulatory system. He's appointing foxes in charge of houses <laughs> throughout the government. Absolutely, from the Labor Department to the EPA to the Consumer Product Safety Commission and everything like that. Just as uh, Wilson and his uh, capital ilk would have loved. And there were quite a few of them also, you know, the whole robber baron era. And now there's not so much labor unions, but it's those environmentalists, those, those tree huggers, you know. That's, that's the, uh, the other, I suppose, that he's fighting against. Now, the war in Europe obviously began in August of 1914. Before his reelection in 1916, I found it fascinating that Wilson met regularly with anti-war activists who felt confident that he would continue, as his campaign promised, to keep us out of war. Then, it seems like, rather suddenly, Wilson decided to send our boys over there. That's when the unprecedented propaganda machine went into high gear. Then, as you write, came the fear of immigrants, 1917 style. And these... You know, Germans, for example, who had been woven into the American culture suddenly became the alien invaders, not unlike Central Americans of a hundred years later. What was what was life like for German Americans and German culture and, and how did the the you know, once we decided we he decided to go to war, uh, how did the uh, fear of immigrants manifest itself? Well, uh, let's just talk first a little bit about that decision to go to war, and then, then let me answer your question. Sure. I think that uh, another thing that gets left out of the history books is that for the first two and a half years of the First World War, the United States was having the benefit of neutrality. Uh, in other words, American ships were not being sunk, America itself was not being attacked, and so forth. But it was also having the enormous benefit of selling vast amounts of military supplies to Britain and France and to Italy when Italy joined the war on the Allied side. Uh, U.S. corporations were, were making hundreds of millions of dollars by doing this. In theory, they were free to sell to Germany as well, mm. but Germany was under a tight naval blockade, and there's no way that you could actually get goods there if you sold them. Mm. So the U.S. Was, was, in effect, economically part of the, the Western allies who were fighting Germany and Austria-Hungary. Yeah. Um, the Germans knew this and were upset by it, and so they started uh, you know, doing some sabotage within the United States, blowing up uh, ammunition dumps and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and then it was really because of this that they instituted unrestricted submarine warfare in early 1917, saying that ships carrying goods to the Allies, to Britain and France, would be sunk no matter what nationality they were. And then it was only a, a short matter of time before uh, uh, Americans yeah. got so upset at seeing their ships sunk that they entered the war. And that war unleashed a tide of xenophobia like we have never seen this country. Mm -hmm. And I grew up hearing about this from my father, uh, who lived in a German-Jewish family in New York. His father had been an immigrant. Uh, his mother had been born here, mm. but of, of uh, parents who immigrated from Germany. They spoke German at home, but they were terrified to do so on the street because people were, you know, beat up and literally lynched 
for a German connection. There was a, a German-born coal miner, Robert Prager, in Collinsville, Illinois, who was seized by a mob, um, wrapped in the star, in an American flag, made to sing the Star Spangled Banner, and lynched. And a couple weeks later, uh, the leaders of the mob were put on trial. A jury found them innocent while uh, a band played military music outside the courtroom. Oh and my father and other you know, German-speaking people in New York, both Jewish and Gentile, uh, were well aware of this kind of thing, made damn sure they never spoke German on the street. My father, who was of military age, was desperate to get into the U.S. military because wearing a uniform uh-huh. was something that could protect you from that kind of violence. And um, it was reflected in all kinds of other ways. Families named Schmidt changed their name to Smith. Um, uh, there was a town named East Berlin, I think it was in uh, uh, Indiana, that changed its name to Pershing. Uh, <laughs> General Pershing, Hamburger yeah. became um, a Salisbury Steak, a Sauerkraut, <laughs> Liberty Cabbage, and so forth. It was just absurd. Uh, but it, it kind of, you know, a war does that to people. It takes the lid off a lot of uh, boiling resentments and craziness that otherwise, you know, there might have been an effective lid on. Well, it does seem that the lid has been lifted off of the, uh, well, some people have called it the sewer pipe here uh, in uh under Donald Trump. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're speaking with author Adam Hochschild, and he has written an article in the L.A. Times and Tom Dispatch titled, 100 Years Ago, Woodrow Wilson Fanned the Flames of Hate Just Like Donald Trump. Uh, And so many different, I mean, I'm reminded, of course, of Freedom Fries after uh, uh, 2001. Yeah, yeah, same kind of thing. (laughs) Just a little bit nuts. And, now, I had heard this rumor. I don't know if it's true, and I guess you don't either, but that what we call French toast, it seems to me that's far more uh, typical of German cuisine than uh, French cuisine. So maybe, maybe it was German toast before it was French toast. I have no idea. But prohibition went into effect at that time. Of course, beer was a big part of German culture. Were the two related, prohibition and what was going on? Uh, I think it probably was. Prohibition, of course, didn't um, happen until just after the war. Right. But there was a feeling that uh, the people who were profiting off America's thirst for drink uh, hmm. were often German brewers or brewers of German descent. So that was it. Was part it was tangled up with it. In a way. Yeah, it seems like a way to get to their culture and. You talked about being afraid to talk to speak German on the streets. You know, today we have the all-powerful internet, just which knows everything about everybody all the time. How was there reason to fear the big powers listening in to private conversations back then, and you know, doing it on the streets? Well, there was, and I gave an example yeah. um, in the piece which I wrote, where. And it's, it's fairly rare when you can find cases in this country when people have actually been prosecuted legally for things that they said in private. But there are a number of cases from this, this era. And here's one. There was a guy named Charles Schoberg, 
who lived in Covington, Kentucky. He was 66 years old. He was a shoemaker. Uh, he had been born in Germany, but lived in the United States since he was a child. He'd actually been a policeman and city council member in his town. And, uh, but because he was German-born, people were suspicious of him. This was so all over the country. And in the spring of 1918, uh, there was a local vigilante group, the Citizens Patriotic League. There were mm. groups like this all over the country. They hired a private detective to put a microphone in Schoberg's shoe shop while a detective listened in from a nearby building. They picked up a series of conversations where Schoberg and two friends of his, both of whom were American-born, incidentally, were making uh, critical remarks to each other about the U.S. armed forces. Uh, one comment they said was, you can't hold the Germans back, which was not an unreasonable thing to say they at were the moment in the spring of 1917 when the, the Kaiser's army looked like it was about to capture Paris. Uh, all three of them were arrested. Schoberg was sentenced to 10 years in prison, one of his friends to seven years, the other to five years, for things that they had said just when there were three of them together. They were not plotting to do anything. They were just expressing their opinions, in a, not in public, but in a room where there were only three people. So it's amazing to think things like that happened, but they did. Well, and I can think of, uh, there was a case uh, locally, oh, a few years ago after 9-11 when an Arab-looking person was on a bus and he was speaking on a cell phone to somebody in a language that the local people didn't understand. And all these military forces came out with machine guns everywhere. Oh, it was amazing. And still, you hear stories now about vigilante-type people going up to you know, brown-skinned people speaking Spanish, which... I know, I know. <laughs> I know, there's, there's a real vein of xenophobia like that, that that runs very deep in this country, I'm afraid. And they feel, that these, these vigilantes feel patriotic, like they're doing this for President Trump. And, you know, obviously the, the, uh, the murderer in the El Paso situation used a lot of words that Donald Trump has said, invasion, invasion, over and over again. You write about something called the American Protective League, an official, officially, it was an official auxiliary of the Justice Department. Tell us about them, please. That sounds a little bit right. frightening. This was the biggest of these vigilante groups which thrived in this era. Uh, the American Protective League ended up with some 250,000 members. It was officially chartered by the Justice Department um, so they could claim to be an auxiliary of the Department of Justice. Um, and they had, for instance, the same privilege that anybody in government does, the franking privilege of sending mm. mail for free. You don't have to buy a stamp if you're, you're part of the federal government. They made citizens' arrests of people all over the country uh, who were, they were suspicious of one reason or another. Above all, they were looking for draft dodgers, because there were a lot of draft dodgers. The war was not universally popular uh, among Americans. Yes. And the government offered a bounty of uh, 50 bucks, which was a lot of money in those days, for catching a confirmed draft dodger. And people went looking at for them, and 
you know, citizen's arrests were made by the mm. tens of thousands. Uh, something that also groups like this, the American Protective League and the other vigilante groups did, was to uh, convey to the uh, Bureau of Investigation, which was the predecessor uh-huh. of the FBI, uh, rumors about suspected German sabotage, you know, suspicious-looking people seen lurking outside factories or whatever. And if there was an explosion at a factory or something went wrong, of course, it was immediately blamed on mm-hmm. sabotage, uh, whether or not sabotage had anything to do with it. And because there had been some actual German sabotage, uh, I was wondering. Uh, most notably a, a huge uh, explosion at a uh, ammunition dump uh, in New York Harbor, ammunition that was about to be shipped overseas mm-hmm. to Britain and France, there was a sort of slight aura of reality to this kind of thing. But in wartime, you know, the the rumors of of <laughs> always outweigh the facts by hundreds to one. And that was the case with, with these people. Uh, and, of course, you know, Trump, as often as he can, pictures it as an invasion. And a lot of people seem to feel sort of like this is a war against the invaders, the other people. And it's fairly easy to pick those others out because their skin is darker and they speak Spanish. But, uh, you know, they've been part of America for a long time and they're growing more and more and more. So, you know, in war hysteria, it's no surprise that there's a fear of foreign spies. And one can understand that fear of of an actual enemy in our midst. You cited one example. What was the level of actual danger of, of espionage and sabotage? Well, there was not much after the war began because the government had there, as there were, as I say, there were actual German yeah. espionage agents who were... Sure. Who did a few actions like this big explosion in New York Harbor. But they had all been rounded up by the time the war actually began. Uh, And in addition, you know, people who were, uh, uh, many of the people who were arrested or otherwise repressed, uh, you know, there was vast press censorship, for example. They were charged with inciting disobedience in the armed forces because if you spoke too loudly against the war, you know, it could lead to desertion and mutiny and so forth. But in fact, the armed forces were almost without exception pretty enthusiastic to fight the war. And in fact, once American troops began arriving in France in large numbers in uh, late 1917, early 1918, the their commanders faced a problem, which was that, you know, in any kind of traditional combat operation, there are far more soldiers in the rear maintaining supply lines and so forth than there actually are people in the front-line trenches. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these rear-area soldiers were so eager to be in action against the Germans that they did what was called deserting to the front. So, you know, the danger that propaganda would incite mutiny was really ridiculous. Hmm. What the authorities at that point, I think, were really worried about in this country was the influence of the Russian Revolution. Uh Because, of course, just when the U.S. entered the war in the spring of 1917, that's when the first phase of the Russian Revolution 
took place. The czar was overthrown. Uh, a more or less democratic government uh, came in place. Briefly. And then later on, in November of 1917, there was a coup by the Bolsheviks where this extremely radical uh, faction took over in Russia and preached world revolution, uh, promised they would take Russia out of the war, and did so. Yes. And this upset the, the authorities in the United States and the other allied countries no end, <laughs> and they were terrified that the Russian Revolution might spread to the U.S. Yeah, it's funny how that uh, subterfuge happens. Like, uh, uh, there's speculation that when the atomic bombs were dropped on Japan, it was really uh, to get the attention of Stalin uh, after, you know, we had pretty much won the war against Japan. But that's another uh, story. Uh, and you mentioned, uh, very, you know, press uh, crackdowns. Today we think of the post office as thoroughly benign. What about what, what happened with the post office during the Wilsonian crackdown on dissent? Well, Wilson had a postmaster general. And, of course, the post office was, was just back up and remind people that the post office was extremely important at that point because it was the way that you distributed anything written. Uh, not only was there no Internet, there was no UPS, there was no Federal Express, there mm. was no faxing and so forth. You had written material, you wanted to get it out. No radio. It had to be through the post office. Wilson's postmaster general was a guy named Albert Sidney Burleson, a very uh, pompous uh, politician who was actually the first Texan to be in a cabinet. And he was put in charge, essentially, of censorship, and uh, issued a rather vague uh, series of orders saying that any published material that traveled through the mail could not uh, cast discredit on the motives of the United States government and its allies. Wow. A delegation of lawyers, including the famous Clarence Darrow, went to see him asking him to clarify this, and he refused to do so because he knew, like a lot of petty tyrants, that a vague edict is much more terrifying and freezes people in their tracks more than something that's spelled out very specifically. Uh, so here was this, this vague edict. Burleson used it to either completely shut down or censor particularly issues of some 75 newspapers and magazines around the country. The most famous of them was uh, a wonderful monthly journal called The Masses, yes. published in New York, which was uh, one of the liveliest magazines ever published in this country. And hmm. all sorts of people wrote for it, from John Reed to Edna St. Vincent Millay to the young Walter Lippmann to Sherwood Anderson. Hmm. Uh, it was shut down, as was uh, Emma Goldman's publication, Mother Earth. Uh, and foreign language publications were something that the government was particularly uh, afraid of because wow. you didn't know what these Czechs or Slovaks or Greeks might be saying to each other in their mysterious languages. Maybe they could be preaching revolution. So they made a rule that anything that appeared in a foreign language publication, and there were hundreds of these at that time in the U.S. because there so many immigrants oh, yeah. had arrived recently, and preferred to read read stuff in their own languages. Many of them couldn't read English. 
they made a rule that anything published in a foreign language publication in the United States that dealt with the war or the U.S. government or American allies had to be translated and shown to the local postmaster before this could be placed in this publication could be placed in the mail. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, was a ruinous expense and, in effect, shut down a lot of these publications. Boy, a lot of people would like that these days as well. And, and it, you know, all this is showing the incredible power of fear. You know, the the from the Martian invasion in 1938 to the alleged invasion now by the uh, the, the uh, people coming from uh, our southern border, just the fear and and what it does to people. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today, Adam Hochschild, who has written an article, a lot of really good books too, by the way, uh, titled uh, "100 Years Ago: Wilson, Woodrow Wilson Fanned the Flames of Hate." Just like Trump. And Trump, of course, while we're on the subject of the press, he hates the press. <laughs> what were Wilson, the, the Wilson administration's relations with the press? Any similarities in their sentiment? What, what were the uh, effects on our allegedly treasured freedom of the press? Well, I think certainly a, a president who has his postmaster general uh, shut down yeah. or censor complete issues of 75 newspapers and magazines is not somebody who is fond of a free press. (laughs) So I think that's the biggest similarity. You know, Trump would love to do this kind of thing, too. Oh, certainly he would. And it's amazing how many Americans uh, think this is just swell. And one of the things we haven't touched on yet is a biggie. The deservedly infamous Espionage Act of 1917 what was the fear it whipped up and allegedly sought to address, and what was the reality? Well, the, the fear, of course, the ostensible fear, was that German spies, German secret agents, and so forth would be carrying out espionage uh, in the United States that would hamper the war effort. But there were, if I'm remembering correctly, some 1,500 people prosecuted under the Espionage Act, a version of which is still on the books, incidentally. Uh, But only 10 of them in this era, 10 of those 1,500, were actual German agents. Instead, it was basically uh, an anti-labor tool. Uh Because with the United States officially in the war, anything that happened in the way of a strike or militant labor action could be labeled as threatening a vital industry. And, you know, in wartime, you can make out the case that almost any industry is vital because the military consumes the same kind of stuff that the rest of us consume. Uh And it was used again and again as an excuse to send people to jail, uh, as an excuse to terrorize people. And it created an atmosphere where even though uh, somebody might not actually be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Uh-huh. Things could happen uh, mm-hmm. under its aura, so to speak. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, mid-1917, there was a strike among copper miners in Bisbee, Arizona, striking for better wages, better working conditions. There was a, a huge copper boom because of the war, because you need copper for bullet casing. Oh, yeah. And the miners wanted a larger 
their share of the enormous profits being reaped by copper miners. Uh, the Phelps Dodge, the company that owned most of the mines that were on strike, worked together with the local sheriff in the town. The sheriff organized a posse of some 2,000 people uh, identifying themselves to each other by wearing white armbands. In the middle of the night, early hours of the morning, they swept through the, the, the town, arrested about 2,000 strikers and their supporters, and held them under the hot sun at a local baseball field, then loaded them into boxcars, cattle cars, uh, on a train, and that train with armed guards riding atop these cars and cars full of armed men driving along the road beside it uh, uh, went uh, a long distance across the state border into New Mexico, where these folks were locked up in an army stockade for a while. Uh, they were released, but if any of them tried to return to Bisbee, they were immediately arrested again. Extraordinary that something like that could go on uh, in the United States without even an official prosecution under the law being part of it. There's actually a new movie called, I believe, Bisbee 17, uh, about where where present-day people living in this town reenact what happened then. Hmm. And uh, there was that Sheriff uh, Joe Arpaio who did something rather similar with some people of Mexican-American descent. And I don't know if he... Well, actually, uh, he, he got charged with some crimes, but Trump pardoned him, of course. Right. Absolutely uh, amazing. There are some differences, of course, between Trump and Woodrow Wilson. Pretty much every day, at least once a day, Trump seems to take real glee in making inflammatory comments. Of course, that diverts attention really well. Here, here's a new shiny thing to look at. But one big difference between Woodrow Wilson and Donald Trump is, as you write, rabid invective was hardly Woodrow Wilson's style. He carefully kept his image as an above-the-fray idealist, yet Wilson was still able to manipulate inflammatory rhetoric. How did that work, and what, what were the goals, do you think? Well, I think he, you know took seriously the idea that the president should at least look like a figure of dignity, uh, look like a statesman. So he outsourced the inflammatory <laughs> stuff uh, to other people. Um, and, you know, one we've already talked about, Burleson, his postmaster general, who did all this stuff about cracking down on the newspapers. Uh, another, and let me read you a quote of his, was Elihu Root, who was yes. at the time in mid-1917, was special emissary of Woodrow Wilson. And Root was actually uh, a figure very high in the American establishment. He was a corporate lawyer in New York City, had been Secretary of War, had been Secretary of State, had been a senator from New York. He was kind of the prototype of the so-called wise men, the New York corporate types who moved back and forth between Wall Street and Washington to be the 20th century foreign policy establishment. But um, Root was rabid on this issue. And in August 1917, after the U.S. had been in the war for several months, he gave a speech at the Union League Club in New York and said that pro-German traitors were threatened. 
threatening the war effort. And he said, and I'm reading this is a direct quote, there are men walking about the streets of this city tonight who want to be taken out at sunrise tomorrow and shot for treason. Uh-huh. There are some newspapers published in this city every day, the editors of which deserve conviction and execution for treason. I mean, you know, a former cabinet member and senator calling for executions of people? And that's even going a little further than Trump, actually. <laughs> True, but at least the president looked so dignified. And any pictures you see right. Woodrow Wilson, oh, he looked so dignified. He was very, very good at he that. He did look dignified, but you can find in his private correspondence things that he says, like when um, these raids against suspected draft evaders took place that we were talking about, you know, right. done by these private vigilante groups. He writes approvingly notes saying this will really put the fear of God into people. Yeah, well, yeah, that uh, calling out God to to be uh, you know on his side. It's yeah, it's been done before, and I find it interesting that that you know Emma Goldman, you mentioned earlier, great American. If people are not familiar with her, she she paid a price, and she had an interesting quote on different kinds of patriotism, uh, which may be instructive for today's world, where each side claims yeah, the American lovely, flag is its own. Lovely quote. Um, she and her uh, longtime associate and sometime uh, lover, Alexander Berkman, were yes. put on trial for organizing against the draft because she preached against the draft and felt that, you know, no government had a right to... Uh, uh, yeah, you know, send people make people join an army. Yeah, in those days, of course, there were no women on juries, so she addressed the gentlemen of the jury, and uh, it's a lovely quote where she said, uh, "May there not be different kinds of patriotism, as there are different kinds of liberty." And her own patriotism, she thought, said, was like that of the man who loves a woman with open eyes. He's enchanted by her beauty, yet he sees her faults. And I know no better definition of patriotism than that. That is, uh, she and Berkman were sent to sent to prison for two years, and then as soon as they were released, they were deported from the United States, uh, yeah. um, along with some 250 other radicals who were put on a ship and sent off to Russia. I, I do find it interesting if, if people, you know, libertarians might dare to read some of Emma Goldman's stuff. I think they might like a lot of what she said. But uh, again, history, you know, erasing history is so important <laughs> to the powers that be. And as we all know, deportations are a really big stick in Trump's arsenal. The Palmer raids, tell us about them and how deportation was used as a political weapon. Maybe Trump learned from that? Like. Well, these were raids that took place uh, by the Department of Justice uh, in association usually with local police forces in late 1919, early 1920. Keep in mind, the war had ended by then. The war was more than a year over, so they no longer had the excuse of, of uh, you know, eliminating pro-German traitors or whatever. But what they were really worried about, as I said, was the Russian Revolution and the idea that these, you know, the fear that these ideas would spread in the United States. So they rounded up, uh, there are no accurate figures that we know of because the statistics are not good, but it was pro- 
probably at least 5,000 people all over the U.S. who were held in horrible conditions. Uh, some 800 people were held uh, for four or five days in a windowless corridor in a federal building in Detroit with the use of only one sink and toilet. Uh, hundreds of people were arrested in Boston and marched through the city streets in chains to be held in a makeshift prison on an island in Boston Harbor. And what they were really looking for were people they could deport, because among the foreign-born radicals in the United States, a large number of whom were Jewish or Slavic, Mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of people who had never bothered to officially get regularized as American citizens. There was much less of a big deal about that, incidentally, in that, in that era than there is today. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, you know, people like Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, who had been in this country for decades, had never bothered to officially make sure that they were American citizens. So they were looking for people that they could deport. Uh, and they did deport uh, thousands and thousands of them. Um, there was a very heroic figure, and it's kind of an interesting story because it shows you what a, uh, a, a determined ethical person can do in a mid-level position in government. Mm. The interesting thing here was this. The Justice Department was under the control of the Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer, right. who was ferocious on this issue. Um, perhaps especially so because anarchists had tried to blow up his house uh, in Washington. Mm. Uh, But also, he was running for the Democratic nomination for president uh, in 1920. Uh, So he was really tough on the issue of deportations, and his right-hand man in the Palmer raids is somebody people of my generation know all too well, young Justice Department official named John Edgar Mm -hmm. However, although the Justice Department ran the raids, deportations were actually under the control of the Department of Labor, which had within it something called the Immigration Bureau. Uh, The Secretary of Labor was out ill, and the person who was in charge of processing deportations was the Assistant Secretary of Labor, a man named Louis F. Post who had been a Henry George radical and a progressive journalist, and he did everything he could to make the deporting process uh, difficult. Saved about 3,000 people from being deported uh, by finding various legal gimmicks to prevent that from happening. J. Edgar Hoover was furious, Mm. organized uh, a witch hunt against the Post in Congress, the Post defended himself very well and turned back a congressional attempt to impeach him. Mm. Hoover also organized the American Legion to go after him, but yeah. the Post was able to survive that as well. Uh, but it's so the, the fury for deportation, which we see today, was also something that was very much in play at that time. And I've I read about the idea of 100% Americanism back then coming into play. There was a uh, Something that that worked directly, I believe, for the president, the Creel Commission, which uh, was a propaganda arm and was very, very effective at at whipping up 
uh, fear and and rage at the others and, and wanting people, you know, to get involved uh, in supporting the war. And if you didn't support the war, you were something like the other. And I wonder about the 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 position of labor you know as we mentioned the IWW the wobblies were were pretty big they captured the imagination of a lot of the public at the time and i wonder about you know what these days you know the there i mean i wave a flag too but there are people on who also wave the flag and say you know if you're a democrat they really honestly say if you're a democrat you're the enemy you're the other that's something pretty new i think but but trying to uh, uh, you know say that if you're a traditional uh, American somehow and you're not pro-Trump and and pro you know authoritarian somehow you're not patriotic and it's the other. So I wonder about this you know the other the immigrant as you mentioned a little bit about uh, taking on the real threat which was the labor movement which the powers that be the big corporate powers. Uh, didn't like the capital over the labor. Yeah. Well, the Creel Commission, the, the Committee on Public Information, as it was called, was enormously influential. It was the U.S. government's propaganda agency. Yes. Again, wars give you the excuse to do this kind of thing, something yeah. that a government should not be doing the rest of the time. They mobilized 75,000 speakers who would go and give short speeches, like before a movie began in a movie theater or at a community meeting of one sort or another. They produced films with titles like The Claws of the Hun or The Kaiser, the Beast of Berlin. Uh, They produced a vast amount of literature. They produced propaganda posters, one of the most famous, which your listeners may have seen an image of, of at some point, shows a gorilla yes. dressed with a German helmet, you know, those World War I German helmets with a little spike on top, yeah. carrying off a helpless, screaming woman in his arm. White woman, yes. And underneath it says, destroy this mad brute, enlist. So the government was pouring all this poison into the, the public atmosphere. And, you know, as I mentioned, it was People all it underlain by and dislike of immigrants that a lot of Americans had, kind of forgetting that their own ancestors had immigrated here several generations earlier. Uh, but the fact that the, the new immigrants were so often Jews, Italians, Greeks, Slavs, speaking other languages, that, that made it very easy to imagine them as being the other. Uh, and something also, of course, another connection was a lot of these new immigrants had, you know, were, were radicals. Yes. They had been socialists back in Europe. And the Wobblies welcomed them with open arms. Yes. Anybody who had been a member of a labor union in his or her own country uh, of origin back in Europe was immediately made a Wobbly member here. Hmm. Um, so all these things kind of fitted together. And the big business, you know, must have fed off of, of this feeling, you know, to, to repress, you know, if you're a labor organizer, you're the other. If you're a member of a union, you're the other. If you want better right. regulations, you know, in your workplace, you're the other. Well, these days, the overarching 
aim of the right wing now in power, as said by uh, uh, Moscow Mitch, <laughs> uh, was to take over the judicial system. That's what they really aim to do now. They want to completely control the judicial system and move it way to the right and make it much more uh, uh, extreme. In what ways was the judicial system affected by the World War I years? Well, you can find countless cases of judges who maintained, you know, free speech did not exist in wartime. Uh, and, you know, judges who, even though they had not been appointed during the kind of systematic effort to appoint right-wing judges that we see going on right now, and that I think is one of the scariest things happening in this country, yes. nonetheless, they would maintain that, you know, in time of war, traditional free speech protections uh, uh shouldn't apply. I mean, that, that case we were talking about in Kentucky, you know, three people inside a shoe shop mm. uh, convicted and sent to prison, one of them for 10 years, for things that he said in private and not in public. Uh, you've got to have a judge that doesn't believe in the Constitution <laughs> to render such a verdict. So it was it's scary to me to see the way so many judges were caught up in the atmosphere of the time, even when they had not been specifically appointed to do that kind of thing. Ah. Ah, lovely. Yeah, but it'd be nice to learn from history, but one thing I have learned through the years that people are probably tired of me saying is the one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. Uh, That's for sure, Bert. You're <laughs> absolutely right. We just don't want to. But the economic realities around this time, in 1915. You take a look at them and compare that with today's wealth inequalities. What threats were there then to the super-wealthy and powerful control over America? Well, that was also a time of very, very um, uh, extreme maldistribution of wealth. Uh, 1915, the top 1% of the population owned, if I'm remembering my statistics correctly, uh, about 39% of the, the nation's wealth. Today, that figure is even a little higher. It's 40 or 41%. So that was also a time of extreme uh, economic inequality. And when there is extreme economic inequality anywhere, the people who are the haves in that kind of situation want to keep it that way. They don't want to have their yachts and their private railway cars and their estates and so forth taken away from them. So these were folks who were extremely hostile to the labor movement, which yes. was the one force at that time that seemed to threaten this extremely un unequal distribution. And they are very happy with Trump right now. Trump seems to be giving them everything they want, that one-tenth of one percent even. It's... And somehow people buy into it. They, <laughs> we've seen you know, a history of people, working class people, voting again and again and again with enthusiasm against their own interests. Uh, yeah. But so what, what came after this ugly, repressive, anti-other people? Was it swept under the rug? Was it recognized that, you know, maybe that wasn't a good thing? You know, I'm just trying to think of after Trump. Uh, yeah, well, I think what happened was uh, there was a, it was a tremendously stormy time. There was this 
vast wave of repression in the, the many ways that we've talked about. It, uh, another big part of it was uh, uh, racial tension, because yes. when those several million soldiers who'd gone off to World War I came home, they were looking for jobs, and black and white soldiers were you know, competing for those jobs. There were a lot of race riots between them, because uh, the, 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 the desperate fear that you might not have a job could so easily get channeled into racial hatred. Right. Um, the Palmer raids kind of petered out in early 1920, and Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer had actually predicted that on May Day of 1920, there would be a communist uprising throughout the country. Hmm. People were so terrified by this, that actually in the city of Chicago, the authorities arrested more than 300 radicals and held them for the day in preventive detention, something that fairly seldom happens here. Preventive detention, uh, yeah. Ab- uh, on that May Day of 1920, exactly nothing happened. <laughs> no communist uprising. So people's fears of this began to dissipate. Uh, the labor movement, in effect, had really been not completely crushed, but greatly set back by all this this uh, turmoil and repression. The Wobblies had been crushed yeah. in a series of trials, including one big trial when more than 100 of them were brought from all over the country to Chicago and shipped off to federal prisons. Um, so the labor movement was crushed. And, you know, gradually the country realized there was not going to be a Russian revolution in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warren Harding then won the presidential election that year, and even though we remember him as a sort of corrupt nincompoop, he in fact did um, let uh, almost all the imprisoned radicals out of jail. Uh, Eugene V. Debs, the great Uh socialist and great labor leader who had been uh, sent to prison in 1918 for his opposition to the First World War, and actually in the presidential election that year received nearly a million votes for president. As a prisoner, Harding let him out of jail two years later and actually invited him to visit at the White House. Hmm. Uh, so the country pretty much it didn't, didn't change the maldistribution of wealth, right. but the repression uh, gradually dissipated. There were a lot of new laws, not just the Espionage Act, but uh, uh, laws against sedition and conspiracy that were on the books that made it easier to suppress radical movements in, in the future. Yeah, well, here we are today. It would be nice if we could uh, learn from history and, and make things better. Uh, the article that we're talking about from the L.A. Times, uh, the author here, Adam Hochschild, uh, titled 100 Years Ago, Woodrow Wilson Fanned the Flames of Hate Just Like Trump. His latest book is Lessons from a Dark Time and Other Essays. Adam Hochschild, thanks so much for being with us again. I look forward to uh, speaking again, and maybe uh, every now and then there might be some good news. What the heck? Thank you. Let's hope so. Thank you, Bert. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Like I've been.